It's time for the only show where today's top mid-revenue cycle leaders share the personal stories, struggles, and successes that you won't hear on the big stage, but made them who they are today. Are you ready to go off the record? Here's your host, Brian Murphy. CDI and coding professionals typically recoil from the dreaded word payer. <laughs> After all, that relationship has been typically adversarial. You know, you work to clarify the diagnosis or the procedure with the physician, apply the medical code only to have a payer downcode or deny the claim. Uh, and my, I have to say, though, my guest on today's podcast gets it because she once worked in the hospital setting and today serves on the payer side. And really, that's where, that's where things get interesting. Um, we have some new hospital insurance plan arrangements, often in the context of Medicare Advantage contracts that require a bit of a partnership rather than this traditional combat we've seen. And if all of this goes well, the beneficiary is the patient. At least that is the belief of my guest today, Colleen Genitazio. Uh, Colleen is the director of CDI encoding for Capital District Physicians Health Plan. I think I got that right, Colleen. And is the first guest on this program from what some some of us will will say the dark side, but I hope we'll we'll be finding a lighter, much lighter place on today's program. I want to welcome Colleen to Off the Record. Welcome, Colleen. Thanks for having me, Brian. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to get you on. Thrilled to get you on. You know, I we got so much to talk about today, uh, but really want to start as I like to do by setting some context. Could you talk a bit about your role as so you're you are the director of CDI encoding again for Capital District Physicians Health Plan? Actually, before we get to your role, maybe, maybe talk a little bit more about the healthcare broadly, um, who you guys serve, and then and then what you do with that sure. organization. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to explain. So we are CDPHP Capital District Physicians Health Plan. We love to say that physicians is our middle name. We were founded by physicians, mm -hmm. and that. That gives us a unique perspective and it's something that we hold dear um, to all of our efforts. But we're a not-for-profit health plan up in the Capital District of New York. We currently have over 440,000 members and we service commercial, Medicaid, and Medicare. We cover 24 counties, over 5,000 physicians, and over 65 hospitals. Wow. Okay. So quite a large swath of real estate, and uh, but also different uh, organization types. Amazing. So what, what are you doing? What, what is your job encompass? Give us a kind of a day in the life of, of Colleen G. <laughs> yeah. A day in the life of, of Colleen is a, a very busy day. Um, I'm responsible for our audit and our education efforts and both the audit and education efforts encompass internal and external. So for auditing, we, place a really high value on the quality of coding that is coming out from the work that our, our um, internal coders are doing. So that's, that's a big focus. We have a dedicated team of internal auditors. Those auditors also focus on all the external audits, right? Everybody's aware of it right now in today's environment. Mm -hmm. um, OIG, DOJ, uh, risk adjustment data validation audits, RADV audits, the final rule just came out. Um, the stakes are, are, are getting higher and higher. Yeah. Uh, the RADV final rule just shared that, you know, extrapolation is going to begin in 2018, which makes us, you know, want to up those efforts even, even more so that we can make sure that the data that we're reporting is an accurate representation of the care that we're providing. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So moving, moving on, that's the audit piece. The education piece, we do the same thing. We have an internal and an external education. And um, our internal education is something I feel sets us apart from a lot of different coding organizations because we have a, a dedicated internal coding educator um, to make sure that our coders are always up to date. What sets our coding uh, department apart from other coding departments is we really um, ask our coders to be critical thinkers. It's not just, you know, if this, then this, this is how we're gonna code it. We, we want every chart to stand alone. We want them to be telling the patient's story so that um, we know that the data, again, that we're reporting is really telling that story of what happened with that patient and what care was provided. And then on the external side, we're supporting our busy, busy um, providers and showing them how to accurately show the work that they do through their coding efforts. We help them to navigate and to resolve some EMR challenges. Um, so it, it's a big job. It's a, it's a busy day in the life, but we're, we're getting it done here at CDPHP. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, you've already said a lot that I have just some natural follow-up questions because I, I'll be honest, Colleen, I, you're, you're the first person I've had on from the payer side. I don't quite know how this piece works. Yeah, we, we don't employ our physicians. Um, okay. We work with our community physicians and because we were started with um, by local physicians, we, we maintain that close relationship, but we don't own our physician network. Okay. And you're, the coders you employ, you're actually uh, coding claims that you're that you're then s submitting for. Uh, okay, for sure. So we we focus on risk adjustment in my area, um, which is reporting the accurate severity of illness of of our members and our providers' patients. Um, so we employ our own coders to review those charts because what happens with risk adjustment and um, reporting the true severity of illness is oftentimes providers are doing a tremendous amount of work with these patients. And because of the limited, limited amount of time that they have to record those encounters and to document those encounters, that story is not always being told. So we hire our own coders and we train them um, through our own program to make sure that um, every, every patient's story is being told through those ICD-10 codes according to the official guidelines um, of ICD-10. Okay. And you're working broadly under the umbrella of Medicare Advantage. And so you're submitting these um, coded bills to coded claims to, to Medicare Advantage for, for payment. Yeah. And, and we don't just do Medicare Advantage, right? Because okay. we want to make sure that every patient's story is told, whether that that's a child or uh, an elderly um, patient. So we cover commercial Medicare Advantage as well as our Medicaid line of business. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I, I ask these because I think the perception and I, I have it as well is that a payer is just has a pool of money and is looking at these claims coming in and is, uh, you know, protecting that and, and denying claims as they see fit to do so. But to actually have, you know, the, to, you guys are inserted in the middle as as educators and with your own coding team is probably a little different than I think people think of when they think of payer. Yeah. And we have to. We have to start looking at things differently because it's it's mm -hmm. not necessarily protecting this you know pool of of money or, or finances that are being used to to pay for the the services provided. We really 
are, are using the data and the diagnostic information to support not only the patients, obviously, but, but the providers, our, our primary care doctors for years have been overburdened, right? There's, there's just yep. so much on their plate. We're seeing a burnout rate higher than ever. We're seeing people leave primary care mm-hmm. in droves and, and that's just not acceptable and it's not gonna get us to where we need to be. So we use the data from, from the diagnosis coding that we do, not only to tell the patient story, but to also identify those patients for different care management programs. So yeah. we have an internal behavioral health um, department, for example, where if we can identify those patients who might need additional therapy or might not be taking their medications as prescribed, we have a dedicated team of professionals who can not only reach out to the patient and make sure they get the care that they, they provide, but to support that care that the provider is giving. So we're, we're really working more as a team with our, with our providers. I love that. I love yeah. the approach. We're going to get to that a little bit more on the show, but um, yeah, that's, it's, it's important. I, I, and I'm a, I'm a big advocate of, I, I, I know that there are people that, that aren't fans of, you know, and you work for much more than just Medicare advantage, but, but the Medicare, Medicare advantage, payers they you know this there are a lot of high profile audits coming out right now they have been targeted for um you know denying claims at a higher rate than traditional medicare but i think the concept is very sound there i think we're 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 getting to a better spot but this concept of preventative care moving care further upstream i believe in strongly um, and we'll get to it a little bit later, but actually I've got an example of my, my own father who is, you know, he is, uh, he's got a lot of health issues and has uh, Medicare advantage, um, working with him now on some preventative services and some in-home services that I'm sure are being impacted by, um, the work of a, a payer in my market. And it's not, it's not your plan, Colleen, but it's, 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 it is impacting me in a, in a way that makes this topic a little more resonant. Um, one other thing that's unique about you, Colleen, that I touched on in the in the opening is, you know, prior to coming into this role, you worked for Devoted Health uh, Risk Adjustment. And if I'm not mistaken, you were the director of ambulatory CDQI at, at Mount Sinai Health System. So you've you've worked on both the provider and the payer side. Um, Absolutely. And, and yeah. my work at Mount Sinai really was... Um, a great experience because I've always had what I call an empathetic approach to provider education because I know they're busy, right? We, we know they're busy. They, they have a lot on their plate, but working on the provider side and seeing things from that side of the fence really gave me a whole new understanding to the challenges that providers face on a daily basis to make sure that they're providing that care um, and, and often providing it in a very limited amount of time. And, right. and getting reimbursed appropriately for the work they're doing. Um, looking at it from that perspective has has really um, enriched my experience and, and given me a whole new understanding for the larger industry. Yeah. Does it impact the work you do today? Those 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 memories that you have of working in, the, in that setting? It absolutely does. It Im- impacts the work that I do, um, not only in, in looking at some of the systems that our providers use and, and being more sensitive to um, how a, how a provider has to navigate through some of our antiquated systems sometimes. Um, it also gives me a, a different way of delivering education. Um, and I, I put a focus with my external education team on always being clinician friendly and not to come in 
um, training from a coding perspective or, or teaching heavily on coding guidelines, because that's really not where the physician's head is at. They, they want to talk about taking care of that patient. So we really change the way we deliver education to our providers. And we make sure that um, the words that we're using, because words matter, it are clinician-friendly words rather than words that serve our purposes as a payer. I know. I'm always, I'm still shocked by the, some of the misconceptions around what providers do and how, and the reality of things like when you, some people expect their, their providers to be coders and they wind up, you know, having a drop down list where they're picking a, picking a code and they're often just picking straight from the top. What's like, what's the easiest to do because they're so busy and so overwhelmed. Um, it, it happens all the time. And I'll, I'll add to that and give you an example of, of something that I changed dramatically. Um, in risk adjustment, um, there's an acronym that we we refer to all the time, and it's it's a coding tool. It's the acronym MEAT, M-E-A-T, mm-hmm. and it, it shows a coder that something is you know monitored, evaluated, assessed, or treated. And we use that as support to say, okay, that's an active condition that requires ongoing care. Um, when I was introducing some of my work at Mount Sinai, one of my physician co- colleague said, this means nothing, Colleen, like meat is not something we're familiar with. Um, start thinking like a clinician. And he gave me the advice that, you know, clinicians are, are told to work up a patient, come up with a diagnosis, a status and a plan. And that's now I took that and I'm going to use that for the rest of my career. I, I use it in our education program. Diagnosis, status and plan is an example of clinician friendly education, because you're thinking like a clinician, you're Mm -hmm. not asking them to do a coding exercise. You're asking them to tell that story of the patient and the work that they're doing with that patient. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that myself, but I'll, I'll I'll credit, I'll credit you Colleen for coming up with that. Um, That's awesome. You know, and I, I do want to get back just a minute to the, the, Provider v payer angle here, because again, you've, you've, you've seen both sides. What was it like when you were at Mount Sinai? I mean, you, you, you must've had a perception of payers then, and that maybe has changed now that you're working on the other side. Um, uh, why has this always been so traditionally adversarial? I mean, we, we, we kind of know this, but um, you know, and, and we'll, and we'll get to this in a minute, but if things are starting to change as we start to see different provider uh, and I mean by that provider, I mean hospital um, and payer relationships. But can you talk a little bit about this traditional head-to-head relationship and sort of how you see things changing or, or how you think the industry needs to change? Yeah, so the industry does need to change. I've been preaching about this for years. That that historical fence between provider and payer needs to come down, right? It, it always existed. And depending on what side of the fence you're on, you're gonna roll your eyes. You know, the, the provider isn't giving us the information we need. The provider's rolling their eyes saying the, the payer just doesn't wanna pay what they're, they owe us. And that, that's not gonna result in the better outcomes that we need. Um, our goal at, at CDPHP is always to get our members the right care in the right place at the right time, being good stewards of, of that healthcare dollar. Um, and I, I do think that, it has like we, we've been talking about bringing that wall down, but in today's environment, we really in, in order to be successful, both sides need to be successful. And that's why you're seeing these these partnerships develop where, hey, let's let's kind of start playing on the same team and um, we're like rowing in the same direction, if you yeah. will. Um, and I, I think you're going to see really much better outcomes across the industry. 
Could you give me an example of how that type of contract might work? Something like shared savings with a hospital? Like how, how does this actually play out in practice? I'll, I'll admit I don't quite understand, but I, I understand there could be some shared savings if the, if the, if you're working with a payer, I, I want to, one of the, one of my goals of this show is to try to hopefully give people a different idea of how to work more closely and in a, and in a better relationship with a payer, like becoming an ally, like how should that look? Um, I think it should be very transparent. There's so many different levels. I think we could do a whole show just on all, all the different types of contracts that you could, you could possibly have, but providers usually, um, step into value-based reimbursement with a, you know, upside only, right? If, 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 if we're successful in this, you're going to share in, yep. in some of, of the success. There's um, no negative, negative consequences. Yep. Right. Just to, to kind of transition there. And then you'd see varying levels of, okay, now there's, there's upside risk, but you're going to take some downside risk and the ultimate, you know, risk based contract would be that full risk contract where, where the mm -hmm. risk is completely shared between provider and payer. Gotcha. And is that something you guys do? Do you, do you work in those co contracts at all levels? We do. We have a, we have a whole team of people who, who work on some really innovative contracts. We have an um, enhanced primary care program. That's, that's very well recognized and has been around for years. Yeah. And are you seeing some improved relationships with the provider side due to the nature of these, of these contracts? Yes, and absolutely. And from my from my perspective, and again, I'm not on the contracting side or the provider relations side, but how I can tell things are changing and relationships are improving is that years ago, when we wanted to come in and do our education on on risk adjustment coding, it was it was a tremendous lift, right? We would, you know, oh, we we don't have time this week, and we were lucky if we were able to get in just for ten or fifteen minutes in front of the providers. And now what we're seeing, because we're building these trusting relationships and we're, we're removing barriers for our providers, we're actually seeing providers come to us and say, hey, can you come in and give us not only group training, but one-on-one -on -one training. And um, we heard that there was updates. Is, is there something that you can come in and share some new ICD-10 updates with us? So to me, that's a huge, a huge marker of success and shows that this work really can be done if, if we're both empathetic to each other's um, challenges. I love that. I love yeah. it. Love it. Um, so much to talk about here, Colleen. Another thing I wanted to mention is uh, your, your, your work in quality. I know you're not directly in quality. You might have a separate quality department, but uh, your work does seem to overlap quite a bit with uh, CMS star ratings. Um, hoping you could talk a little bit about that intersection of coding and CDI with quality and, Maybe an example of how one side can complement the other. And um, a lot of my audience, as you know, are CDI professionals, coding professionals, but maybe how, how their work can, can help to improve those quality outcomes we're seeing. The star ratings yeah. are um, constantly evolving and changing, and they're really becoming more of a focus for, for programs. Yeah, so the way I've always anchored our risk adjustment program is around patient care. It's not about risk adjustment. It's about how, how are we showing that we're caring for this patient? And are, are we truly getting to that, that patient's story? Um, and years ago, as, as we were going out and doing our education, we realized our HEDIS team, who is excellent at what they do, was also going out with a, a message on how to document and code for some of the same conditions. Mm. So when you think about it from a provider abrasion standpoint, 
you know, there's CDPHP knocking on the door asking, can we come in and talk about risk adjustment? And then our HEDIS team would be coming in to talk about HEDIS and STARS. And there's a lot of room to overlap our messages. So I'll give you an example. This is something I'm, I'm really proud of. And it shows that when you break down silos within an organization, um, how much success you can have. Um, so an example would be our chronic conditions education, um, which my team does for diabetes. We go out and we focus on documenting and coding um, that's needed to tell the story of a patient with pre-diabetes versus uncomplicated diabetes versus diabetes that has now impacted those various body systems. Then we tell the provider once that definitive diagnosis is established, we want to tell you more, right? So, okay, now we know the true story of the patient. It's, it's a diabetic patient um, who fortunately, let's say in this case is uncomplicated. Then we outline the next steps for patient care from the HEDIS and quality perspective. And that, that plan of care would be, we need A1, A1C control, we need annual eye exam, we need a blood pressure control, we need a kidney evaluation, right? So we're not only getting the patient story right, but we're not knocking on the provider's door twice. And then I'll just give you one more example to, to sure. bring it home. COPD, right? So from a chronic condition standpoint, still one of the leading causes of readmission yep. to hospitals. So we're going to focus on documenting clearly for chronic condition purposes, is it acute or is it chronic? Because acute respiratory issues, we're not expecting to see year over year. However, chronic respiratory conditions, we would expect to need a treatment plan year over year. The HEDIS overlap here is... Um, whether the patient is symptomatic or asymptomatic, they should have a spirometry. So again, we're, we're outlining not only how to tell the patient's story from the chronic condition side, but then what's, what's the proven method of treatment from the HEDA side um, that the patient needs. Yeah. And those are all required elements within the, the STAR ratings program to make sure right. that you're yep, yep, yeah. getting into those buckets. Yeah. And a, a key piece here too that I always try to remind people of instead of, of educating our providers on risk adjustment, um, which is ever-changing, right? I'm in the business and this is what I, I, I live and breathe every day, but risk adjustment changes year over year, month over month. Um, instead of focusing on training on risk adjustment, we train on chronic conditions because that's patient-centered, right? We wanna focus on our patients with chronic conditions who might need additional resources to take care of them that we expect to need additional resources in the following year. And that's, that's the anchor of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned diabetes specifically. It, it seems like it would be a, a basic concept, but yet I know that this is a constant continued focus for outpatient CDI and for the payer side, um, getting physicians to document it, but it really, it's uh, making sure the treatment is in there as well as the, Specification. I just found out recently that non-insulin dependent diabetes is a thing. That was that was new to me. Right, <laughs> and, and some of the right. dealing with 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 my father, which I didn't even know uh, he had a specifically. So I've been going down the rabbit hole there. But is that really what it is when it comes to, to diabetes and what you do to, to to educate physicians? There's there's a couple issues that make diabetes so challenging. One of them is the ICD-10 code set looks at things from a coding perspective. Right. And there's a lot of assumed linkages, we call them, um, where if a patient has diabetes and a cataract, ICD-10 code set tells us, we're going to assume that they're related and we're going to make that a diabetic complication. 
completely legitimate to, to make that a diabetic complication and code a, a higher severity of code. When you speak to clinicians about that, they will adamantly disagree and be like, no, not every cataract is, is um, related to diabetes. So there's, there's a disconnect and that's what makes outpatient CDI so challenging is oftentimes um, clinical and coding worlds collide and, and they're, they're not lined up as, as easily as, as one would hope that they would be. So that's one of the issues. And then the other issue with coding diabetes, especially with the complications, is our EMR systems, right? The mm. busy physician who has about 20 minutes with the patient puts in diabetes. Well, that, that search is going to return over 300 codes. And who has time for that while you're trying to take care of a patient? So right. that's, that's another thing that makes it a challenge. Yeah. And this is what you, a large part of what you do is you're just, you're, you're providing education here. And uh, what, what, what does that actually look like? Are you, are you going out and meeting with physicians or is, is a lot of this um, sort of distributed through your staff or done via, via Zoom or online? Or, I mean, this, this, there's so many uh, folks you have to touch with this level of, with this information. Um, sure. So it's, it's any way we can get that messaging out. Okay. And I always like to say, you know, seven times, seven different ways, because everybody learns differently. Everybody hears things when they're ready to hear it. So we are very innovative in our approaches and we will obviously do zoom and we've relied heavily on zoom through COVID, yeah. um, but we are getting out there face to face, both nice. in group sessions and what I call one-on-one -on -one at the elbow service for providers where we're sitting there looking at their chart with them and showing them, Hey, you're doing a great job um, documenting for COPD. You have some more opportunities to, to um, better illustrate your work with diabetes and we'll, we'll go through it and we'll remove some of those barriers again with the EMRs. When we see that it's tough for a physician to find the right code for diabetes, we'll work with the EMR team and we'll make that easier. And we'll come up with workflows where it's, easier for the physician to choose that correct code at the time of care. Another um, innovative solution that we've come up with is what we call micro learnings. And these are quick five to 10 minute snippets um, pre-recorded that a busy clinician can listen to over a cup of coffee before they see their first patient on the ride home. So it's not a full blown one hour on, you know, every condition that's in, in a risk adjustment model. It's, here's how you code for COPD and they, they can listen to it when they're ready to hear that at nice. their own. Time. Nice. Yeah. I've also heard podcasts can be a good way to uh, transmit information. I've, I've heard the same, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little, I'm a little partial here, but that's so cool. The micro learning, is that mostly audio? Do you have a video component to it? No, it's, it's, it's audio. It's completely it's audio. audio. Yeah. Nice. And we're able to push it out to our, our clinicians to listen to, you know, as a portion of a regularly scheduled meeting or on their own time, like I mentioned. Very cool and, and very innovative. So a few few takeaways for my listeners today. Um, you touched earlier on in the show, Colleen, about the current regulatory environment and how it, it really is highly charged and fraught right now. It seems like every day we're getting those new audits um, hitting Medicare Advantage in particular, but it's really throughout the industry. Um, now we got a new Medicare Advantage CMS rule that stresses oversight. I was actually taking a look earlier at some of the, the verbiage uh, that CMS put out um, during their release of the um, 2024 Medicare Advantage uh, uh, payment policies. And Medicare should be providing equitable, high, pro high quality, affordable care that will be available for our children and grandchildren, um, especially populations with the highest health disparities. 
and how the Biden-Harris administration is taking action to make the Medicare program stronger and hold the industry accountable. Starting to read a little bit more about this, you know, how, how did we get here with this space and how do, how do we begin to dig ourselves out? Like as if we're going to solve this in the next five minutes, but just I <laughs> would, we'll love, try. Would, we'll try. Would, would love to get your perspective on this. <laughs> sure. So I've been around a long time doing, doing this work and right now there's more external scrutiny and regulatory oversight than I've ever seen before. Yeah. My personal opinion is we got into this because um, we tried to move too too quickly into value-based reimbursement. Mm -hmm. and, and as we move so fast um, forward so, so quickly, we didn't take into account all aspects of people, process, and technology. Because it's one thing to, to train our physicians and our coders to say, hey, now we're looking at diagnosis codes as opposed to CPT codes or evaluation and management codes. But what we didn't take into account was our infrastructures were built in that fee-for-service um, model. Yep. And those infrastructures lead to codes being hard to find, descriptions not matching for ICD-10 codes, ICD-10 codes being truncated as they move from the EMR through the billing systems, through the clearinghouses. Mm -hmm. I think that's where, where we um, kind of got into a lot of the mess that that appears in, in risk adjustment today. Yep. Um, I, I do feel like there's more scrutiny than ever before, but I divide that into two to two categories. So I look at it from an OIG standpoint, Office of Inspector General standpoint. Um, they're they're responsible for making sure the program has integrity and that the dollars are being spent appropriately. If there's anything good to say about an OIG audit, I can say that the OIG is very transparent. Yeah. Um, if you're surprised by an OIG audit, then you just weren't paying attention. They're extremely transparent. They, I love they, what they actually do. They're they're educational to read. I know no one is going to want to read about their hospital or their, or if you're an organization payer reading about the audit, but there's a lot to learn from those, and they give you the methodology and they tell you what the findings were. And, you may not agree with all of them, but it's but it's there. That's exact exactly, and that's one of our approaches here. Is every time one of those OIG reports comes out, we study it and make sure that you know is there anything in here that we're doing that we could be doing better, um, and, and we make that a regular part of our, our audit pro process. Yeah, the DOJ switching over to the DOJ, which is a different um, group who has a lot of litigation going on right now. Um, most of their cases are coming from whistleblower cases, right? Yeah, yeah. So when I when I look at that, that is our call to action as an industry to make sure that when we have dedicated teams of certified coding professionals that we're really opening up the lines of communications because if you read any of these DOJ cases, these were people who went internally with their concerns and they weren't listened to. So mm -hmm. I, I take that as a reminder to, to make sure that we're having these discussions and that we have the, the communication where people feel heard. These regulations are changing. Um, our systems change all the time. Keep, keep that communication flowing and encourage your people to, to air their concerns. Don't create this environment where people feel like, I'm not sure if we're doing the right thing and, and nobody's listening. And then they go to an outside entity to have them, them look into it. A lot of these I feel like could have been avoided if there was there is more open and honest communication yeah you're right i mean that's a hard conversation to have in the moment yeah. but if you do have it then you're you're potentially 
avoiding a lot of downstream risk that you don't want to be in, in, involved in, including the worst case whistleblower investigations. Right. And um, yeah, that's some good advice. Love it. Oh gosh, so much more to talk about here, but we're, I know we're, we're, we're getting near the top of the, of your, of your time here with us, but hoping you could leave our audience with some common compliance vulnerabilities that you're seeing on the payer side, you know, either, either by the physician themselves, you know, we, we mentioned, I mentioned, uh, you know, self-coding, for example, any other documentation deficiencies or, you know, uh, poor coding practice. We just talked about some of these OIG. I've, I've been seeing a lot of like acute conditions being reported um, for Medicare Advantage when obviously they, they shouldn't be unless the, the patient had an acute stroke in the office, which is unlikely. Um, but is there anything that you're seeing um, from your, again, payer side that you think our audience could benefit from? Sure. I, I look at two areas um, that really present a, a tremendous amount of vulnerability. First of all, clinicians are not coders, right? The great majority of clinicians do not have a certification in coding, but no. we're forcing them to be we're forcing them to be coders um, in an extremely short period of time. Uh, coding rules have always been complex. They're getting even more complex. They're ever changing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that's one of the problems. So that partnership and that physician education needs to be a constant effort. It's not a one and done, hey, we're going to give you some, some chronic condition coding education and now we're done. It has to be an ongoing exercise. And then I, I think another vulnerability is the over-aggressive risk adjustment practices that we've seen across the industry. And that's why that's why you're, you're seeing so much scrutiny. Um, risk adjustment practices that focus on risk adjustment rather than on patient care. Because we have to mm -hmm. remember the, the purpose of risk adjustment is to, to tell that true severity of illness so that we can get the appropriate resources to take care of that patient's needs. So mm -hmm. we've developed our program around patient care, um, an example of focusing on risk adjustment rather than patient care or uh, the clinician experience would be blindly presenting recapture opportunities year over year, right? These conditions were captured last year, and now we're putting it in front of a busy clinician saying, recapture these for these patients this year without looking at them. And the key word here is blindly putting those forward to, to um, recapture because a lot of the conditions that fall into a risk adjustment model we're not going to expect to see year over year. You, you mentioned yep. an acute stroke, right? Patient had an acute stroke. We don't expect that patient to have an acute stroke the following year. Yep. Patient had an acute DVT. We're not expecting that to happen if the patient is cared for correctly year over year. So we have to do a better job on, on the payer side before we present that information to the clinician to, to clean it up, if you will, and, and to really give them actionable and timely and trustworthy data at the point mm -hmm. of care. Yeah. And this stuff is so important. Again, I, we chatted before the show that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of dealing with this now. I'm starting to see it from the real world. You know, my, my father has COPD. He's got, he's got diabetes, a non-insulin dependent. Um, and these conditions are leading to a, a need for more care. You know, he needs some, he needs care in home. Um, he's just, he's a high, utilizer right now and um ideally you you would not want him my father coming into the emergency room every couple months for expensive treatment so you you want to get that care up up front and in in the home in a less expensive setting so 
I would love to hear your vision of how this all might look. You know, what does great preventative, quality-driven, cost-effective healthcare look like, and and uh, how do we get there? <laughs> if, yeah. if 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 you have if you had it your way, Colleen, how how do we end up in in the right spot? And and how does you know as as CDI and coding professionals, how, how how do we help us get there and get the care where it needs to be? Okay, so that's that's a big question with, with lots of uh, lots of answers. So I, I think you sharing the story of your father is a great reminder that there are people behind this data that we're submitting, right? And that yep. those people, their care is affected. Um, I'm going to go back to what I stated before: make this patient centered and and uh, clinician friendly. So rather than presenting things as recapture opportunities. We, we rephrase it as now is time to refresh the patient's treatment plan, right? Mm. So that we're really not just doing a coding exercise of putting this code into the system and, and um, reporting it year over year, but we're really refreshing that treatment plan. Are they getting the right care at the right place at the right time? Um, if we're, if we're going to do this right, my vision would be if everybody is rowing together, we're identifying those patients who are falling through the cracks, especially now post COVID, those patients who still have, are, are fearful of seeking care in the physician's office. They haven't seen their primary care doctors. Those mm -hmm. patients who are dealing with social determinants of health, who might not be able to afford their prescriptions. They might not have um, transportation to the pharmacy to pick up those prescriptions or to get that preventive care that really has been proven to, to um, provide better outcomes. Yeah. They're starting think, to lose their driving skills. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. There's, there's, there's so much of the patient story to tell. And I, I think we just have, have started with the tip of the iceberg. And I think that's the accountability we have as, as an industry is we, we really need to do all we can to, to tell the entire story. I do think that coding and CDI helps us again to, to clearly and tell that patient story and just as importantly to tell the work that our providers are, you know, to show the work that our providers are rendering at the mm -hmm. point of care so that they eventually will have more time with the sicker patients and an appropriate amount of time with their healthier patients. Yeah. I'm excited to see some of the developments in social determinants of health. You know, I, it was the high profile one. We just saw homelessness is now going to be a CC, for example, but the movement in that direction, because it's it's obvious to me, especially now with with what's going on with my life, you know that you know if you're home and you're isolated and and you're you've got limitations, um, you've got you know maybe some depression getting in there as well. That the all of these things are are uh, going to impact your health down the line, and they're predictors of health, and they're predictors of expense. Um, of, of illness and the predictors of a, of a larger hospital bill. So you, we should be capturing these and there just hasn't been the incentive to do so, but that's why I believe in risk adjustment. And I believe in this as a model for keeping patients healthy. Um, I think you've outlined some great ways we could do that, Colleen, and we're not there yet. And we're, we've run into some compliance issues along the way, but I still believe that this is the way that healthcare should be delivered in this country, moving away from fee for service. I think these are maybe some of the last throws of that transition of, you know, we, we were, we have one foot in each industry. There are going to be some rough patches, but I'm, I'm confident we have good people working in the space. You among them that will, will eventually get there. We will. Yeah. I, I believe we're heading in the right direction. It's going to be a long road, but we are definitely heading in the right yeah. direction. 
making some progress. All right. Well, this was fantastic. I really appreciate the interview and taking your time. I do want to ask, I've, as you may have noticed, if you follow me on LinkedIn, I've started a uh, off-the-record Spotify playlist. I've wanted to do a, a, a mixtape, and it's just not going to work out because this is no longer the 1980s, even though I sometimes think it is. But got to get your uh, got to get your top 80s hit here, Colleen, for my uh, my my growing off the record Spotify playlist. It doesn't have to be 80s, although you know I'm, I'm a little partial to that decade. So what do you what do you got for me here? Yeah. So when I'm <laughs> when I'm thinking about um, where we are right now in the healthcare industry. I'm a huge Billy Joel fan, so I'm going to choose We Didn't Start the Fire. Nice. Yeah. We did some, but we're, we're going to keep carrying that fire, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you, Colleen. This was terrific. Um, again, uh, it's just amazing to hear from the uh, from the payer side, and you've got some great perspective on, on these issues. And thank you for joining the show today. And for our listeners, if you like this episode of Off the Record, please give us a, a rating. Um, make sure to tell your friends the best referrals come from word of mouth and we will see you back here in a couple weeks for the next episode take care everyone thanks so much for tuning in to off the record if you're enjoying the show please feel free to rate subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts this helps others find the show and we greatly appreciate it we'll catch you in the next episode